Getting paid has become dramatically more complex for growing software companies. You've got to manage different currencies, new payment methods, changing regulations, tax regimes, failed payments and fraud. Payment stacks built piece by piece grow unruly and force SaaS companies to waste time and money on updates and integrations. Paddle is the only complete payments infrastructure for SaaS companies. Paddle handles all of your payment processing, tax collection and compliance, invoicing, subscription management, renewals, reporting and fraud protection globally. With Paddle, you'll grow faster and enjoy the journey more. Visit paddle.com to find out more. If you have a deal, do the deal. Focus on the deal, agree the terms, no deals ideal. So I think, uh, especially in this environment, this becomes even more so true. And I think founders should be caring more about capitalizing their companies these days and thinking less about sort of devaluation. Because I think that it's very volatile, you're not selling your business, but you need to make sure that versus competition and versus the environment for the next 24 months, ideally, you want to build a war chest of cash for the next like 24 months. Hey everyone, welcome back to the SaaS Revolution show brought to you by SaaStock, the conference that helps SaaS companies get traction, growth and scale. I'm your host, Alex Thuma, and I'll be looking at what it really takes to build and grow a SaaS company today and how founders and entrepreneurs stay healthy on the journey. Now on with the show. Welcome to the SaaS Revolution show, Alex Konopiasti. It's a managing partner at uh, Flashpoint uh, Venture Partners. Welcome, Alex. Thank you, Alex. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. Great to have you on the podcast. Are you dialing in from uh, today? I think somewhere in, in sort of exotic. Uh, I mean, certainly I'd like to be there rather than where I am right now. No, nothing nothing fancy. I'm just in Italy with my kids for the short Easter break. So that's where we are. Uh, very, very, very good. Enjoying some Italian uh, food, I imagine, of, uh, of course. And uh, I'll yes. be there. I'll, I'll be there soon. Uh, like I mentioned, we're, we're bringing 25 founders from the SaaStock founder membership over to the American oh, Coast in, in May, uh, which will be uh, fantastic. Looking forward to that. Uh, nice as travel is kind of coming back. The world is coming back to normal to be able to do such things. You, you didn't realize how much you missed them, or maybe you do. When you're, you're, you're doing business over Zoom, yeah, for these two days years. they're still asking for QR codes everywhere. Like Britain, where we're not wearing any masks or anything anymore, but in in Italy they're still asking for it. But when you guys are here, it's going to be over. So yeah, uh, should Good. be easier. Looking yeah. forward to it. So Alex, <laughs> um, uh, tell us a little bit uh, about yourself. Uh, you, you know, as a person, who is Alex Konopiasti? Yeah, so Alex Konoplasty is uh, uh, is uh, is a father of uh, two kids, uh, happy father, I should add, uh, of two kids. Um, uh, also, I am uh, a founder in a way uh, of my own uh, company. Uh, I am a former investment banker, so I used to work for Morgan Stanley and UBS, uh, based in London originally, and um, uh, focusing on telecom media and technology. So I've been basically doing. Uh, the sector in, or in general throughout the whole of my professional career and never done anything else. Um, I'm uh, originally, I was born in Kiev, so I'm uh, sort of uh, half Russian, half Ukrainian. Uh, so it's a, a strange combination these days, but uh, uh, that's uh, that's who I am. <laughs> uh, 
uh, yeah, so that's, you know, in a nutshell. Uh, maybe to add, uh, like, uh, I studied Japanese at the university, uh, mm-hmm. uh, which was quite uh, quite interesting and uh, love various types of sports, you know, from skiing to, you know, table tennis. I, I'm, I quite enjoy playing table tennis. Very, very, very cool. How is your Japanese? Would you say you're fluent? I'm not going to test no, you. Well, no, no. I mean, well, it was 25 years ago, but uh, yeah. my, when I go buying my sushi in Hampstead these days, my wife sometimes gets, you know, this awkward moment of, wow, he's speaking some <laughs> strange language. <laughs> Very cool. And, and why did you, as you mentioned, former investment banker, um, you, you know, why did you start, you know, Flashpoint? Um, what's the story sort of behind that? Uh, yes. Yeah, so, uh, I've been an investment banker and, uh, basically after the financial crisis in 08, uh, during a couple of years after that, it became apparent that the industry has changed tremendously. So we used to work and we, we you know, I'm of a mental, I'm a workaholic by mentality. So I work, I like working, I love my job. Uh, and I'm very serious about, about it, uh, you know, in terms of like focus. So if I'm doing something, I'm doing it properly and I'm all into that. Um, so, you know, in, in the banking industry, they used to remunerate you properly, you know, before the financial crisis, you, you work and you understand why you're doing all of this, you're suffering, but then you get the payout. And then after the financial crisis, things changed. And also, I think the markets have evolved uh, in a way and it became less interesting, less exciting. Plus, I, I was already a director. Um, responsible for part of the Eastern European, uh, you know, geography. Uh, and uh, basically, I, I can say that, you know, with any profession, after you spend, you know, enough time, you get a little bit bored, right, of doing the same thing. I've done maybe like maybe six, seven IPOs uh, as, you know, as a deal captain and, you know, maybe over 30 M&A transactions, which were like of size. And I decided that, you know, it's time to like think of something to do like entrepreneurially. And I originally was thinking more about like private equity or M&A boutique, so to say, so less about venture capital. And then venture capital ended up, you know, almost by accident together with my uh, university friend with whom we shared the dormitory room, Michael, he's Hungarian. Uh, We basically uh, invested our own money into a tech startup who came for advice, initially asking, okay, guys, you know, we have, we're raising around here. There is some SHA under English law. We've never seen this in our life. You're bankers. You have experience. Can you have a, can you have a look? And that's, and we looked at it and it was an online price comparison in insurance uh, in Eastern Europe. We thought, oh, it's interesting. It's actually very close to our expertise. So we said, guys, why don't we actually co-invest into this round? Maybe a small check, but still, you know, we can be helpful. Uh, and we also helped them with the documents. And, you know, they let us in and, and that's how it all started. And then we looked around. It was like 2011, 2012. And we realized that uh, overall in Eastern Europe in particularly, because that's where we are from, uh, there was there were very few shops who were like, you know, professionals. So there was like maybe like one guy who raised money from EIF, former developer. And that's pretty much it, right? There were no professional teams who think about investing as a business, not as a hobby. I have like free time. I made my, you know, I sold, you know, Skype or something. So I'm, I have a lot of capital. And this is a hobby, investing in startups as a hobby, right? So for us, it was more like a business, a profession. And we thought, oh, it's interesting. You know, the, the market seems to be quite open. E-commerce was picking up those days, you know, mobile, internet and everything. So everything was like developing and growing. Uh, and we felt that there is like a little bit of vacuum. And we decided, listen, why not? Why don't we just, you know, also try to do something like that? Also, it's less capital intensive versus private equity where you need a lot more money. 
so we pledged about $5 million of our own money, uh, you know, the money that we made in our uh, professional career. At the time I was 30, I thought, oh, it's great to like invest everything you made into your, you know, into your profession, into your job. I was super excited at the time. I thought we're going to make 10 times this money in the next five years. Everything is going to be great. So that's how it all started. And our first fund was very small. It was only $20 million. Um, and then we had our bosses, uh, you know, some some people we worked for uh, in terms of like helping them uh, in, in on the deals. Um, it was mostly like friends, family, and full sort of, uh, you know, fund. Uh, and that's how we started. Uh, today, Flashpoint manages about $450, $500 million um, of assets. Uh, we have uh, six offices uh, in London, uh, Riga, Warsaw, Budapest, uh, Cyprus, and Tel Aviv, actually. Uh, and um, basically, we, we have a team of about 30 people. And um, our focus is on international companies or companies that do business mostly in the U.S. or Western Europe. So revenue is mostly coming from there, uh, but with founders and developer teams originating from like Eastern European sort of basin. So that's what we're focusing on. Our team includes people, Latvians, Poles, you know, we have Croatian, we have Slovaks, you know, Ukrainians, Hungarians, Israelis. So we have like a very, very international mixed team. Um, and uh, basically helping startups uh, starting from relatively early stage to grow into you know, uh, larger companies. Um, in the first two funds, venture capital funds, which are have been like invested and almost fully exited. The first one, you know, we, we almost exited. We have like, you know, one and a half company remaining, I would say, out of 12 initially. Uh, and then also in the second fund, we've already done a number of exits. Uh, we actually have uh, closed our 12th exit today out of a portfolio of uh, 25 companies. Um, so in that portfolio, two companies managed to get, uh, um, two companies, uh, actually three companies managed to get overvaluation of $500 million. We were not as lucky to get into unicorn uh, stage with the market markets correcting. You know, we had some companies fundraising end of last year, but we're not able, but you know, one is still fundraising. So we'll see, you know, how it goes. And then two companies raised money from Tiger out of like 25, obviously 25 out mm -hmm. of them, like 15 performed very well. So out of 15, really, we have three companies over 500 million valuation. You know, we have two companies raising money from like Tiger and then many other Tiger being like, you know, sort of a benchmark of uh, uh, benchmark in the venture capital industry. Um, uh, so, 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 you know, and then uh, the other thing we're focusing on B2B mostly. So 80% mm -hmm. of what we do is B2B, uh, and also we are focusing uh, on a particular stage of the company's development. I call the, so we, we try to focus up, I don't call it like Series A, you know, both C, the, you know, it's hard to these days to like, um, you know, hit uh, the right definition, but um, we're trying to focus on the companies that have reached product market fit. For us, because we're finance people mostly, of course, we have people with like physics and mathematics and everything uh, in our uh, in our team, but uh, for us, uh, it's uh, uh, we're finance people first and foremost. So for us, um, uh, you know, we, we, we product market fit means that we can measure that uh, the product that the company has built is working. Maybe they have only one sales channel or marketing channel, 
but they need to have a certain you know amount of customers and like revenue some metrics that we can measure because for us being finance people the worst situation is that if we give them like 1 million 2 million or 3 million is that they don't start spending this money on growing their channels and multiplying the product investing in R&D etc but they keep on pivoting and you know still testing the product because we're yeah. not good at that <clears throat> at all right so we would not be helpful and they're sort of like stuck at that stage for some time so we would waste mm. all our money on keeping like pivoting and me as an investor i just can't add value so we're not trying to we're trying to like you know invest at a slightly later stage but also not too late when it's like all working and scaling because obviously there are some other bigger funds who um, might be more interested in like you know more developed companies so this is a particular stage that we're focusing on Makes sense. And, and thanks for that. And are you doing like a mix of venture capital and venture debt or, you, you know, how are you uh, investing the money? We have. Uh, so, yes. Yeah, so that's a, that's an interesting also topic, because um, so being a banker, what uh, maybe to start from a different perspective. So venture capital business, that's what we started with. And today we look at about one and a half, two thousand companies per year. And out of them, we make five, seven, ten investments. We, we, we do seed on like very rare basis. So it's also part of our strategy. We also could do like later stage, like series B where companies already, you know, slightly bigger, where we in particular have some expertise or we can add value to these companies. But we look at a lot of companies and then, you know, the, to me as a former banker, when I was at Morgan Stanley, when I come, I develop relationship, right? So I, I develop relationship and similarly with startups, we start very early. We might meet, meet the company when they have only like 5,000 of revenue, 10,000 of revenue, but the give them money when they get to like 50, 70 KMRR, like even 100 KMRR. Um, but we like building relationships, getting to know people. They they get to know us. We might be even helping them on pro bono basis, introducing them to maybe some angels even or uh, for business development purposes or for some, you know, hirees that they're looking for where we could be like helpful. Um, so so we build this relationship over time. Usually we, we rarely give money like on the spot. We just met and here is like a million, right? It's very rare. So most of the time, 80% of what we do is a like longer term relationship we develop at least for maybe like a year or something like that. And then taking back to my banking like experience and career. So if I'm a Morgan Stanley banker, I meet the company, develop relationship for years, right? For me, I have at least like 10 products to offer. I can give you, you know, convertible loans. I can give you bank loans. I can give you uh, IPO, M&A, you know, this, that, mergers with other companies, private placement, you know, restructuring. I, I have like a whole lineup of products. And then it makes sense to invest into the relationship. In the VC business, it's a bit awkward. And what we're seeing, for example, is a lot of VCs, they don't follow up with the companies. So they meet you and then they never follow up with you. Like with our portfolio companies, like 99% of VCs never come back. And I think that's why that's how Flashpoint is a little bit different. That we, if we like you, we always first of all we always give you feedback. If you don't fit, we will tell you, listen, these are the reasons why you know you might not be like we might not be good fit uh, like today. And here are the things that you need to develop, right? If if it's like not fit at all, we will tell you as well. Um, but then, uh, but then you know, having only one venture capital product. It's a bit of a strange, you know, strange situation because I've developed so the relationship and then I, I have only one chance to give you money. So as a finance person, to me, it's like very strange. And that's why we thought, okay, how do we solve this leaky bucket of the funnel? Because we invest, as I said, in five, seven, 10 companies maybe per year, but then there are another 20 that we like, but we didn't give the money because something didn't like match like a hundred percent or there was a competitor or anything. 
So that's when that's why two years ago, or we started looking at it maybe like three years ago. That's how venture debt came to life. We thought, okay, if we miss this like Series A company, how do we like? But we like it. We really like everyone. They like us, but they took a bit from a competitor. That's okay. Not the end of the world. Maybe we give them something else. So we launched a new product, and the way Flashpoint is structured is that I'm a VC guy, so I do only venture capital, and there is a separate team that does only venture debt. We have uh, a team of uh, four or five people. Uh, two partners. It's a separate fund. We don't cross-invest, uh, so um, we, and we, we do manage our conflicts of interest. So this is a separate product. They have their own pipeline. We collaborate. So when we um, approach a company, you will get all of Flashpoint, right? So you won't be give, only getting venture capital, venture debt. Uh, mm-hmm. You will be getting all of Flashpoint to support you in case you're fundraising, business developing, hiring people. Uh, we will be able to, to, to advise. Um, so that's how venture debt came to life. And then, you know, the, the other thing which I was thinking about is that, you know, I want to build a company in a way, right? So I don't want to build the fund because fund, at the end of the day, if, if I get bored for whatever reason, when I'm like, whatever, 60, 70, I don't know, if I get bored, if I've been scaling a fund, there is no equity, right? I cannot sell a fund, right? I, I, I can only like gift the fund to the employees and then leave, you know, for my pension. Of course, by that time, hopefully, I, I'm not a poor person, but still, there is no equity. And that's a bit controversial because you spent so much of your life, but you didn't build a company. And that's what mm-hmm. we're also thinking about. Okay, how do we build a company? And it's very hard to build a company around venture capital because it's very hard to scale over time. Our first fund was 20, second fund was 50. Now we're finalizing our third fund. It will be about 100-ish, right? So, but how do you get to 5 billion, right? How much time does it actually take to get there? Maybe never, right? So, but then having more products around that that are complementary, not competitive, right? Um, And also there is basically a demand for our capital. Obviously, like if we're focusing on the founders from like Eastern Europe, in venture capital, we can only invest this much per year, right? You cannot invest a fund of a billion into, into this geography. It's just, you know, doesn't make any sense, right? You know, it's, you know, maybe that's the whole market, right? You can't penetrate 100% of the market share, right? So, but if you do other products, you can actually like scale up to maybe like 5 billion over time. Um, so that's why we decided that we, like, we thought about it and we thought, okay, we actually don't want to scale a venture capital fund, but we want to build a company. And, uh, and that's, you know, that, 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 that's how we evolved into this like uh, vision. Uh, and that's what we're building today. Awesome. Uh, very cool. And uh, uh, quickly picking up on something that you, you did say a little bit kind of early on, you said you very rarely, you know, would give somebody like a million, you know, on the spot having just kind of met them. But you didn't say you never do it. So uh, have you, you know, ever like you met the founder and said, okay, look, we're going to give you, you know, a million or, or whatever, just on the spot, and we don't have to go in depth into it. But uh, we're just curious on that. Uh, I mean, we have invested in like close to sixty companies, so I'm sure you know there there were occasions like that, but it's not uh, it's not um, sort of a rule. So usually, the, and the reason being there that you know. Um, uh, startups at the stage where we are investing, uh, these startups, you know, they come to you, right? They show you the business plan and say, okay, here's my business plan for the next, you know, whatever, 12 months, right? Uh, rarely you need more, but like 12 month budget is something that we would like to see. And then when you start talking, you start discussing something, you start, you know, asking questions and analyzing the company. And most of the time, as you know, you might be talking like for a month, 
but a lot of times these budgets are like not met or like significantly deviating. So, and then you start figuring, okay, so you promised us this, like, you know, as we're talking, you, you just said yourself that in April you will make this revenue. So, you know, you missed it by 20%. Why? Right. So you start like trying to dig in and understand why it's happening. And there may, may be some objective reasons. Some of the revenue might have shifted to May, etc. Some of it might have died. Uh, but a lot of times it's like it's um, it's a process. But also, I think uh, we we actually like meeting founders earlier. And uh, the way we build our sourcing today is that we have actually invested a lot of um, like time and effort and money into building our own IT system. So today we have uh, developed a CRM system that integrates with Crunchbase, LinkedIn, a lot of databases. So the way we work is that there are about close to a thousand sub-verticals in IT that we like and that we monitor that are of priority for us. Um, and basically, if you launch the startup in Estonia and uh, if your startup has over 10 people and it's in the category that we like, you will automatically appear in our CRM system with uh, like some pre-score and a flag that our people in like Riga, Latvia, they must get in touch with you because, you know, you fit into what we like. And a lot of this, and it's just automated, you know, sourcing of, of deal flow. That gives us about a half of what we see today. Um, mm-hmm. Another half is obviously we produce a lot of content. We make our, our we make, we started making some events as well. Um, obviously we have a scouting program. We have some venture partners. There are a lot of angels, early investors who are friends with us and we're friends with them, who we talk to, uh, uh, et cetera. So there, there is like a, then a, a whole lineup of uh, um, different funnels, small funnels that bring, uh, you know, these 2000 companies uh, to us. Um, and then uh, basically the way also uh, how our process works, maybe to, to give a little bit more light. Um, so we basically, uh, we out of this whole flow of companies, we then probably do deeper analysis of about 150 companies per year. We're really dive deeper. We develop, we have a scoring system internally um, that it, it doesn't replace like this decision-making mechanism, like in the bank, if you go through scoring and it's a yes or no answer, but it allows us to collect information. So the questions that we usually founder, ask the founders, they're the same question. So we, like, we ask these founders, like every single one of them pretty much ask the same questions. And that helps us to uh, also compare because you know, not a single deal is this, like not a single founder company or transaction is the same, right? So every, every one of them is unique in their own way. But we as an investor, because we have criteria and we need to make decisions, we need to ha- somehow standardize and, and bring them to the same basis. It's important because we need to b- benchmark our performance over time. We also need to be fair to our team, right? Because we are five, six people. People bring deals to the table. And if I'm as a managing partner, for example, favor like deals only for one person and then all the other ones get chucked, you know, it's not fair for the team, right? So you need to have a set of criteria that everyone agrees to, right? Because then it's a fair, you know, level playing field. Everyone understands the rules. And then, you know, we, we can push this trolley forward. So that's how we operate. And there are about like 100 questions that we asked. Some of them are very uh, quantitative about your economics, about your, you know, everything about your business PL, you know, cash flow, et cetera. We dig quite deep uh, into understanding, you know, what is driving the business, what are the fundamentals. We look into competition, market. Some of the uh, things are more 
like qualitative. Um, so for us, the role of the founder and the team and the qualities of the founders are super important. So we would like to understand their backgrounds. Are they leaders? Are they, uh, can they manage money? Can they manage the team? Can they actually hire people? Can they attract people to the team? Because what I find over time is that being able to attract quality people who might be even like more over, like more qualified than yourself is, um, is a character like it's a part of a character because some people just can't you know it's just remarkable some like very smart people they just cannot attract other people for whatever reason i don't know why so for us these like the this this analysis is super important um and we dig around the you know this the, these like quantitative metrics as well um other investors you know who gave money to these founders before how much capital have they spent right are they efficient or not you know because all companies are different, so you need to like somehow. And then on the basis of this analysis, we we then make an offer. So we make about you know we make quite a few offers to people who we like. Uh, sometimes people understand the deals, the, the terms of the deal that they want, right? Founders a lot of times do have a clear idea. I want to raise ten million dollars or euros at you know this valuation. Some people don't have this idea. I mean, they 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 say we want to raise five, but valuation and like terms are sort of vague. They don't have such uh, maybe good understanding of, the, I mean, these days it's become more simple and people have become more educated, I think, but in general, um, you know, and then we make an offer and then we discuss it. Uh, usually our offer is, um, no, the way we, we think about uh, offers is that for us, it's very important to cover. So we look at the next 12 month budget because this is something that we can like touch and understand beyond that. Usually it's at this stage is, you know, hard to quantify, but we try to understand next 12 month budget roughly, right. You know, how much is it feasible? How many new customers can you add? Uh, what is the performance of your past cohorts, right? So how do the past cohorts are going to be performing in terms of revenue? You know, can you do upsells? What churn do we expect? Revenue churn, logo churn. So we do all of this analysis to like quantify revenue for the next 12 months. And then we think about the costs, right? How many sale, new sales team can you like hire? Because some people come and say, oh, I want to hire this like 20 people. And they say, listen, it's not realistic. You know, you won't be physically able to like find these people it will take you time. Then you need to integrate them, onboard them, right? Teach them, right? It's just, it's going to be a waste of resource. Plus, you won't be able to, uh, to find anyone. Um, so this is, um, this is basically, um, you know, not realistic. And also like marketing, right? So this is probably the next item that, uh, you know, sucks a lot of cash, um, you know, assumptions around that marketing channels, because a lot of times people have only one uh, marketing channel or sales channel, you know, outbound or inbound. And then, you know, a lot of times they think, okay, I'll spend, you know, X amount on marketing, but they don't have a clear plan or strategy, right? They don't actually understand, you know, how much does it cost on YouTube or social media, or they say, oh, I'm going to be producing content, but they have never been producing any content, right? So they have like some assumptions that they don't clearly understand themselves, but they have like, uh, these, uh, these, uh, these basically, um, these, these, these assumptions that need to be verified. And then the, the other item is around R&D team also. I mean, for us, obviously, we're not as plugged in and we want the founders to, the founders run the business. It's their company, right? So we want um, basically a lot of creativity and a lot of uh, energy in the business from them. Um, so obviously we're not restrictive. So whatever budget they give us, we can only like, you know, analyze and say, okay, we believe in this, we don't believe in this. And then in, as a result, there is an amount of capital that is required for the company, you know, for the next 12 months. We usually would add some cushion because you don't want to like, you know, run out of money. So we would add another, I don't know, 
whatever, 50% on top of it, 70 or 100% on top of it. And that would be the amount of capital that we think would be required for the company. All right. Because sometimes people come to us and say, oh, I want to raise 10 million. And then you look at their budget. We only need one. And you're like, why do you need 10 million? You know, it's very unclear to us. But a lot of times founders, they think about the fundraising process that I want like a big round number because I really want it. And then in their mind, it has a direct link to the valuation because they say, okay, I'm prepared to get diluted by 15, 20% maximum. And then, you know, they're dividing one by the, the other and get to the valuation, the desired valuation, right? But in my mind, I think valuation is sort of less important. I think what is important is dilution because if you're not selling today, why is the valuation important, right? You're not selling anything. So you're trying to get money into the company. But what you as a founder should be worried about is the dilution. But another part of it is, and we've had it like all the companies is that a lot of founders don't realize that, but it's, it's, like, it's life is that pretty much at every single round, you will get ESOP. And you as a founder could also be getting ESOP. So in a way, founders do get anti-dilution protection. And I think a lot of founders don't realize that. And there is like little education in the market about it. And that's why they, some of them are like overly greedy, trying to maximize valuation, not thinking that they will get anti-dilution protection over time. Because they say, oh, I have only 25% stake left. By the time I, I will be worth a billion, I will have like 5% left. So it's not interesting for me. But they don't realize there is this, you know, extra ESOP will be coming pretty much at every single round because we investors want founders to be motivated. You can't go below like 15%, right? I mean, we just, for us, it's impossible. We want the founder to be like motivated, have a large stakes. So we will strip you more equity, just, you know, keep going. You're doing great, more motivation. We want you to be excited. So... So that's how you know we sort of um, uh, we sort of work around, and then we put a, put an offer, and then if there is a, you know a deal, we would um, we would do a deal. We we do talking like maybe talking a little bit about um, also diligence. So we do do due diligence. I mean, there are some investors there are like legends going around Tiger, and we raise money you know twice from Tiger, so we know all about those legends. Uh, but um, uh, you know we do due diligence. We try to be not overly like you know. Uh, necessarily aggressive i think for us mm-hmm. more the important the more important things are the business so the business plan you know the fact that there are no like management conflicts or no litigation we did have a couple of situations where ip was not properly registered and um, we had some uh, ip infringements actually in fact uh and that was like something that we missed uh during diligence uh, or maybe didn't get uh, like proper like protection or proper so i i do think that uh understanding you know proper registration of code and uh, structure of relationship with the developers to make sure that they don't have uh you know any liens or rights on the property on the on the code that is developed by the company so the code belongs to the company so nobody can then argue about who, who you know what belongs to whom i do think this part is important so the business plan ip rights and then you know the rest comes to like tax and finance is there, I mean, a great, uh, fantastic insights there into the process and everything that you do to, you know, from start to finish to get the, the kind of deals done. Do you have like either an internal SLA uh, to say, once we we're looking at a deal, we want to get it done in three months or six months, you know, does that matter? What is an average? Uh, and also, you, you know, I mean, I guess, you know, just trying to get some benchmarks or, you know, insights into that. 
Yeah, I mean, we are actually, the way we operate is that, you know, I'm a Morgan Stanley mentality. I'm prepared to work 24-7. And if I can close a deal in a week, I will be trying to do that. So we, 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 we never, like, we never drag our feet. We usually, we do a lot of, like, research around the market or segment. We try to, to do a lot of, like, research independently of doing deals. So whenever a company hits our, like, fan we actually have done analysis of the market beforehand. So for us, it is important. So we don't need to dig from scratch and trying to understand the market. So something looks interesting, but we have no clue about the market or competition and how the market is structured. So we try to preload some of that work that to make sure that, you know, we, we, we don't spend like two weeks trying to understand what the company is doing. Um, and that helps in terms of timing and help us to be more educated. So we, we do want to be more educated ourselves. I think where it takes longer is that uh, usually at this stage of development, it actually takes longer for the founders to actually calibrate and provide information. Although a lot of the business processes these days are super automated with like accounting systems, you know, most of your marketing is, you know, with uh, on Google, et cetera. So you can like offload to us things from CRM, from other, but a lot of times these things are not like, Calculation of cohorts, you know, people have different methodologies and approaches, how they would calculate their cohorts, their lifetime value of customers, customer acquisition cost, PNL. A lot of times people like misplace cost items into different things. So we do take time to like recalibrate all these numbers and to our standards and to like IFRS, international financial reporting standards. Uh, to make sure that they, they 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 compile because if this company is to go public, we need from day one make sure that everything is like in the same methodology, right? So that's where it takes time to actually extract information from the founder and analyze this information, piece piece it together, and then make sure you know we agreed with the founder that he also understands why we look at these numbers in this particular way. So we don't like say, oh, listen, you have wrong numbers. You know, we have our own view of your picture. No, it should be like aligned, very aligned. He needs to understand that these are the numbers. This is a set of numbers. So usually this takes like the longest to make sure that we like realign ourselves. Um, and then, you know, discussing documents. I think that's the other part, term sheet and the documentation, because um, again, every deal is like unique because um, some like we've done a, a, an investment in Austria uh, and under Austrian law. And I can promise you, I will never do an investment under Austrian law in my life. Because there you need to physically come, for example, to a notary to sign the document. And I was like, you know, on Zoom, I could not come. So we had a colleague who did come in person. And I had to sit for three hours because the notary reads out the whole document to you. And you need to listen. She needs to make sure that you're listening. So I had to put on my Zoom with a picture, you know. So I'm like there. And I'm like going around sort of listening. Because, you know. Um, So there are some peculiarities about agreeing deals. Because sometimes there are many angels. Some angels like to have a say because there is a document, an angel needs to like agree, yeah, yeah, these are the rights, these are the provisions. Some people are more peculiar about that. Sometimes founders have more leverage over their investors and they like don't listen to them. The founder agrees everything with you and that's it, that's a deal. And then everyone just, you know, agrees basically. Sometimes other shareholders, other early investors would like to like be more active and that obviously takes more time. But on average, I would say from, uh, from the start where, you know, we like get the initial information and the deal closing, you know, we've done deals that were probably like month, month and a half long. And we've done transactions, which took like four months just because, you know, things dragged around the documents and people like fed their comments. And it was just, you know, um, just took time to agree because you have like 15 investors, you know, like even at this early stage and all of them want to say something. 
We're, we're seeing um, a bit of a correction in the markets uh, at the moment after, um, you know, I don't know, we'd, we'd say crazy uh, sort of years, but, you know, a lot of high, big investments, high uh, valuations. Uh, I don't know if you sort of reference, you know, some deals with not a lot of due diligence, uh, you know, kind of going on. Um, but now we're seeing that correction and a bit of a slowdown in the market. But what advice would you give to founders who are currently raising or potentially even struggling to raise uh, investment in the current climate? Yeah, my advice, and I, I, I always been of, of, of an idea that uh, you should not be trying to like find an ideal deal, right? Uh, because a lot of times founders are trying to like find their uh, like super investor or trying to get to like some desired valuation. I think if you have a deal on the table, you should focus on this deal, right? And you should like, because the, that, there is a deal, right? So you should go and do this deal. And I think the founders who are more successful are the guys who are capable to take money faster and just move on back to the business. Because if you spend six months fundraising, talking to like 200 investors, right? Who might not necessarily be a fit for you because they don't do the sector, they don't do the stage, they don't like you for whatever reason, right? So my advice always, if you have a deal, do the deal, focus on the deal, agree the terms, no deals are ideal, no deals are, you know, I mean, sometimes there are ideal deals, but it, it happens very rarely. So I think, uh, especially in this environment, this becomes even more so true. And I think founders should be um, caring more about capitalizing their companies these days and thinking less about sort of devaluation. Because I think that it's very volatile. You're not selling your business, but you need to make sure that versus competition and versus the environment for the next 24 months, ideally, you want to build a war chest of cash for the next like 24 months. So that's what I would maximize. And then going back to the business, I think this is probably, it's not like during COVID where in some sectors we had to, like in all companies actually, we cut costs pretty much in every, like in every single, some companies were uh, touched by COVID there, we cut costs, we just slashed costs uh, to the bone. In some companies, we like cut the cost by like 30% or something like that, but we did cut everywhere. And I think right now is a time to also be less opportunistic. And if you have, let's say, five, seven priorities in terms of business, I would narrow them down to like two, three and focus on those and try to like not to waste your cash on these other less important priorities until things clear. Because then, you know, you would not have wasted so much cash. You're focusing on the core, on things that are important. And in the end, it will play out, right? Because these things, if you do other priorities and they don't materialize, you just wasted your time, right? So what's the point? So that's what I would be thinking about. And that's what we're telling all our companies. Also, the companies who are planning to fundraise in September, my advice to them, go raise money right now, even if you don't need it like straight away. But I would go because there are still people who are prepared to to invest these days. We don't know what's going to happen. We see inflation rising. And obviously, it will hit consumer, it will hit corporates, profits, and you know it will have the trickle-down effect through the whole system. And relations will come down even further. It's like it's inevitable, unless a miracle happens. I don't know. This miracle could potentially be, you know, like uh, you know, we have the war in Ukraine going on, and uh, you know, if uh, hopefully, you know, if if it stops, uh, you know, sooner. You know, it could be as uh, basically maybe resurrection of uh, of the world after the Second World War when there was a Marshall Plan and, you know, money was flown and, you know, it was a couple of years of depression, but then there was a, you know, big spring in economy globally. Mm -hmm. And here it could also be for Europe as well, in particular if Europe manages to, like, you know, 
uh, help your Ukrainians recover, rebuild infrastructure and everything. It's a lot of money, right? You know, half a trillion dollars will need to be invested in Ukraine to give it, to take it back from the ashes. So it's a significant, it's similar to like what happened in like COVID or in like even 2008, where a lot of cash was poured into quantitative easing. I, I, this could potentially be also one of those, you know, things we don't know. So we can't count on that, but you know, it could potentially be like that. So I think I would like count on the downside and try to be more cautious. Awesome. Well, we've we come to the end of the, uh, the podcast, uh, sort of Alex, but where, where can people find you and, and Flashpoint online? We are, uh, we have a website, flashpointvc.com. Uh, we have actually a chatbot there. So you can always ask us a question. You can submit your business plan online to us uh, via, um, via our website. Um, you can find us, you know, on social media everywhere. We're approachable. If you want to send me an email directly to myself, I'm always uh, happy. I'm at Alex Flashpoint, at flashpointvc.com. Uh, always open, always, um, you know, happy to help, happy to listen to your story. Uh, so we're very, uh, very eager and excited about, you know, startups and com- building companies. That's what sort of um, makes us wake up every morning. Uh, so, awesome. yeah. Good, good stuff. Well, it's been fascinating uh, speaking with you, listening uh, to you in the, the whole kind of process and breaking that down uh, like for us and for the listeners. So uh, thank you so much, uh, Alex. Uh, thank you, Alex. Uh, great to have you on the show. I look forward to seeing you in Dublin at Sastock later this year. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the SaaS Revolution Show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you learned something from it, check out sasdoc.com forward slash events to find all the upcoming SaaS Doc conferences around the world.